0: Um, if you are just sort of tuning in after a little while away, uh, we have been uh, moving our way through the book of Romans as a church, which is really good considering the, the core message of Christianity. Uh, we spend most of our time as a church making our way through whole books of the Bible. That's what we like to preach when we have a choice. Um, but we do stop from time to time to consider questions or specific topics um, just to change things up. And so for a couple of weeks, for four weeks, we've put the book of Romans down. Um, and this is week two of us considering. Uh, what the Bible has to say to us about the topic of heaven, which is really great. If you didn't know, heaven is the forever home of of those who have placed their faith in Jesus. He is our eternal destination. Um, The Bible has information about the eternal destination of those who don't believe as well, but our focus is on the hope of heaven. Um, Big story of the Bible, if we were to describe it to you, we often use this to simply describe it, is that God made this world, he made it, perfect. Everything in it was good. There was none of the the pain and suffering and sickness and death that we all know of as normal life today. Um, But we sinned against God. We we broke this creation. We broke ourselves when we fell into sinful rebellion. And as a result of that, God has now, in his grace, um, started a kind work of building a new thing. There is a new heavens and a new earth coming for God's people to live with God in, which will be, believe it or not, better than Eden. Um, God, in His kindness, has decided to take the rebels and give them blessing um, through His Son, Jesus. Uh, and finally, a day is coming that has not yet arrived. We're still in the, re- the redemption part of the story, but there's a day where redemption will be finished and we'll go to be with God forever. The afterlife, the eternal destination of those who've been saved by Jesus. For something so central, so important, so big and so true and so certain. The fact is that each and every one of us here today will die eventually. So we need to, need to be ready for this afterlife, uh, which is going to be so significant and so permanent that this will look like the temporary and unimaginable thing by comparison. Um, and yet it's a thing that we don't, we don't talk about all the time, do we? We kind of culturally, our, our, our way of dealing with death is to not talk about it um, a lot of the time, which is a great shame for, for two reasons. One is uh, that the Bible actually has got a heap of encouragement for us. It says specifically that we are meant to encourage one another with these words in the New Testament in a verse which is speaking specifically about the coming end things, the, the end of the world and the beginning of the new world. We are meant to encourage one another with these worlds. And the other big negative of it is that, um, well, really, it, it allows a lot of bad ideas to stay alive. Um, there's probably more misunderstandings about the life to come than there are biblical understandings about that in culture in general. Um, my personal favourite is the cover of a Meatloaf album that is... is um, you know, like, that, that's, like that's a realistic view of things, and it's not. It'd be cool if there were Harley-Davidson's and bats and stuff, but um, not in heaven, it's hell, but it's still different to that as well. That one's a downgrade, unfortunately. Um, today we're going to ask ourselves a very specific question, um, because it has a very specific answer that you may not even know to ask the question, um, but by the end of today that you will, and it's this. The question is... For a believer, for someone whose destination is heaven, what happens when we die? What, like, what, what next? What, what's the next thing? Um, as Mike would say, what are you waiting for? Um, am I misquoting you? Just a little bit. <laughs> it's not a dare. No, it's not. It's meant. It's meant to be arousing interest. Is that is that what you're aiming for? Yeah. Um, what, what happens to believers when we die? More specific. Um, why don't you turn with me, if you've got a Bible, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, um, which is speaking about kind of our forever home, right? 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty to 55 says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery: we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Here's, here's a cool promise. Um, heaven is physical. We're going to we're going to spend like a whole sermon on this a bit later on. Um, heaven is a new heaven, uh, a new heaven and a new earth. Um, and flesh and blood, as it exists now, your body that you, you now inhabit, cannot tolerate the joys of heaven. Right? It's like it's like, like Icarus flying too close to the sun and, and melting. Um, like me trying to eat an entire block, family block of chocolate all in one sitting. It's too much happiness for my fallen buddy to tolerate in one, one sitting. That is well worth the attempt. Um, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God for so many reasons. If my, my current body, my, my imperfect body, was to be in heaven, then heaven would be less than perfect, Right? Heaven is a place where no imperfection exists, where none of the, the broken, fallen, stainedness of now is present, and I'm broken and full and stained. My, my flesh and blood can't inherit that as it exists now. What's more, neither does the perishable inherit the imperishable. There's another thing about this body, it, it's becoming more obvious every day, is that it's breaking. I it, am it, sort of, I'm, I'm going through the slow process of cellular degeneration that will eventually result in my death. This is an perishable body. Have you ever, like, have you done that thing where you, you find that meal that you put in the fridge thinking, well, I'll eat that later, and you didn't, but it stayed in the fridge until it was almost a new civilization? And then, and then you, you, always, you always have that moment of, do I open the lid and see if it's gone bad as, as bad as I think it is, or do I throw the Tupperware in the bin? Right? The correct answer is always Tupperware bin. Tupperware, there is nothing to be gained by opening that lid, except for the knowledge, except for the knowledge that that was definitely a perishable, right? What is perishable cannot inherit the imperishable, the permanent, the non-transient, the eternal. For us to be ready for heaven and the blessings of heaven that God intends to lavish upon his people, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Which is one of those glorious moments where God doesn't just tell us that he's defeated death, but that he circles back again to taunt it. Right? Hey death, Where's your sting? Is that that all you got, buddy? I got, I got plenty more. Where that came from? Death. There is a day coming when we will be changed, where your body will be transformed from mortal to immortal, where the perishable will put on immortality. Um, This is necessary. This is necessary for us to um, experience the joys of heaven. He tells us something there, though. We shall not all sleep, he says, which is his word for those of us who have passed away. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And what he is saying here um, is that the Christian hope for the future is not of a disembodied cartoonish heaven. You know, Icarus sitting on a cloud playing a harp sort of stuff. The Christian hope is that there is a day coming when there will be a resurrection from the dead. Right from the earliest days of Christianity, we have believed this. This is, this is, this, this is one of the few things that never divided the early church. I believe in the resurrection. It's part of the creed. Um, there will be a resurrection from the dead. This is the, the all-time hope of Christians, which means a resurrection, a whole-bodied, physical return to life. Like Jesus was raised from the dead and is now alive, we hope and believe that we will be raised from the dead and now is alive. And on the day when all have been brought back to life, that is the day when God will begin to taunt death. Pretty cool hope. Now there's a few of you though who are good at mass and you have noticed um, something. So he says, not all of us will sleep. Why is that? Because on the day when that transformation takes place, that final transformation takes place, some people won't have died yet, right? Some people will go, their, their experience of going from perishable to imperishable, from mortal to immortal, will be that they will be here on the day that that happens, and they'll go from alive to forever alive without doing the thing in the middle. It's pretty cool, isn't it? The Bible doesn't tell us when that's going to happen, and so every time you read the news and someone says, it's going to happen on this day, they're making it up. Hot tip. Somehow that doesn't get them fired and they get to have another guess. Have you noticed that? It's like... It's like failing up. Yeah. Um, That's right, yeah. I didn't Oh yeah. I I forgot how to divide by fractions because I I never knew. Um, It's not true, it's not true. You multiply by the reciprocal. (laughs) But those of us who have already passed away and will pass away between that day and this day, on that day, they will be brought to forever life. But there's a gap here. That's all well and good for those who are here when it happens, but for those who have already died in the last several thousand years, or however long it was, those who are going to die in the coming however long that is, where are they now? You feel it? Like, they haven't been resurrected yet, so where do they go? And there's two reasons we need an answer. Um, one is because eventually, if, if not already, we, we know people who have, as Paul says, fallen asleep, those who've passed away, and we want to know what's happening to them. And secondly, because we will all die one day, and we want to know what's going to happen to us. And uh, God's made it very clear, knowing the answer to this is actually meant to be a strength to us, an encouragement. One last difficulty before we answer. Um, oh, that was gross. Um, the difficulty is that uh, unlike our forever home, which is the main subject of the Bible's eternal information, we don't know as much about the intermediate destination of people as we do about the eternal destination of people. It's, it's vague, And so my information to you has to be vague. It has to carry a degree of uncertainty. We don't know as much as we'd like to. Um, but what we're going to do tonight is a weird, kind of a weirdish sermon. We're going to look at a bunch of, like a shotgun of passages from the New Testament that sort of color in different parts of the pictures to see if we can build out a picture of what we should expect to happen to us or what we expect is happening to those whom we love and have lost. Why don't we look at a few of those together? The first comes to us from Luke chapter 23. And in reading this, it's worth mentioning that Um, one of the places that confusion comes in about this next stage of existence for us is in Paul's use of that word sleep, which we just read in 1 Corinthians. Not all will sleep, he says, but all will be transformed. Um, When he describes, when he says sleep, he's using that word to describe Christians who have died and have not yet been resurrected. He says that they have fallen asleep. It comes up more than once. It's a few times in the New Testament where he describes us in this way. It's a tactful way of, of referring to death. I might say someone passed away, rather than saying, um, Granny didn't feed the cat, and the cat took her out. Like, it's, it's a polite way of saying it. Um, he says that they are asleep, and some have concluded that because he's using the word sleep, he's using it quite literally, and that those who have died are now unconscious. Unconscious. Um, this issue is actually also tied in with another theological question, which I'll, I'll ignore almost entirely, which is the question of can a soul even exist separately from a body? How could there be a conscious existence before the resurrection if if the soul and the body are permanently linked? Do you feel that? Um, other than to say, it would seem that this mistake is that this view, which is called soul sleep, is mistaken, um, because in this, every passage that describes dead Christians and what's happening to them now, they're conscious. They're they're interacting with God. They're doing various things, um, and this is true to the extent that we would. Look to this as our reward. Something to be anticipated, not something that's going to be invisible to us. The beginning of the, of the blessing, not, not a thing to be overlooked. Great passage, Luke 23. Here we have Jesus on the cross. They're crucifying him. Um, they think they're crucifying him for sedition against Rome, but we know they are crucifying him as our substitute. He is dying in our place and for our sins. And in the final insult that this fallen world could throw at the God who made us, not only are we crucifying the Son of God, but we have crucified him between two thieves. It turns out these two thieves um, form for us an excellent picture of um, really the human race. While I'm talking, um, Juliet, could you grab me one of the the tissues at the back, please? We are looking at a picture of the human race. It says the Bible tells us that Jesus was crucified between two thieves, both of whom unlike Jesus, had actually done a crime to get themselves onto the cross. Crucifixion wasn't a thing that the Romans would do to just anybody. Like you couldn't, it wasn't just the same thing as you got the death penalty, you got crucified. To get crucified, you had to do extra good. You had to be really, really good at ticking off the Romans. They wouldn't just do it all the time. It was their absolute worst punishment. It was like the, it was the death penalty plus one, right? These two criminals, these two, probably worse than thieves. They're called thieves, but you don't you don't get crucified just for stealing stuff. But like, what, what do you have to do to get crucified as a thief? Maybe you stole from the governor. Maybe you robbed, you know, the most important building in the town. Maybe you were, maybe your stealing was a part of your being a revolutionary. And they we're making an example of you. And one of those thieves, hanging on the cross, looked at Jesus cursed and spat and said, well, if you think you're the son of God, why don't you get yourself down? And while you're at it, why don't you get me down too? And mocked him. The other thief, we're told, began by mocking him. Began by mocking him. But there's something that he saw and encountered in the crucified Jesus that changed his mind. Imagine this. This man has, has, has been a, a what his entire life to find himself hanging there. Like, it's like that scene at the beginning of the movie. And there I was hanging on a cross. And it's like the first scene of the movie. I, want, I think you're wondering how I got here. I'd, I'd like to know how he got there. He sees Jesus and he begins to mock Jesus, but then Luke tells us there is something about this person that changes his mind and convinces him that he is wrong. And so it says, one of the criminals who, hanged, who was hanged there rallied, railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And the thief on a cross who? I, no, one, no one gave me an answer this morning. Can someone look it up? I think he's Demas. I think that's what history's called him. Is that right? Dismas. 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 Demas is someone else. Oh, Demas is the... The opposite of the positive example, isn't he? Yeah. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, "Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise." Now we we, we know how this man died. Um, later, later that day, Jesus had already died, and when the Roman guards came to look at the look at the people hanging there, the crucifixion would often be a death of several days in length. It was a, a tortuous, death, a slow death, but. The next day was the Passover and the Jews had asked the Romans to make sure the job was done today. And so the soldiers came and broke his legs, which caused him to fall onto his arms and suffocate. And then that day he was with Jesus in paradise. Lights out. Paradise. This is the promise of Jesus. This is not soul sleep. This is paradise. When is paradise? Today. What happens when I die for the believer? Paradise. Paradise. Where are those who we love who have fallen asleep? They are in paradise. They are with Jesus in the place of blessing, fully aware of where they are and who they are with, receiving the beginning of their eternal reward. There is a day coming when you and I will die. And for those of us who have been saved by Jesus, we will join him in this paradise and we'll meet the thief who has been waiting there for us it's pretty cool but this paradise it would seem this is the detail that's weird is not our forever home it is not the resurrection the resurrection comes on a different day this is the home of those who have fallen asleep so what is what is this paradise like so we this is the question that we don't know to ask if we don't know not our forever home not the final resurrection, it appears to be described in one part of Jesus' teaching in the Gospel of Luke, and I've got to qualify this as we look at it. The, the interpretation of this passage is disputed, even amongst good Bible-believing churches. Like we're not sure how to read this. It's, it's tricky. Because it is Jesus doing the thing that Jesus does, where he teaches a parable. The, the two people in the parable of Jesus are not historic people. He's not talking about a thing that really happened. He's, he's illustrating a point about the kingdom of God, and to do so, he tells us a story about a rich man and a poor man whose name is Lazarus. Um, And the disputed interpretation comes in and goes, if this is a parable, if this is a functional fiction, um, the parable is is using things which are not real, things which, which are from everyday life but aren't strictly historically true to communicate to us spiritual truths, spiritual realities. And so if that's the case, can we look at this parable and look at every detail and say, this is what we should expect to happen in the same order to us? And some conclude, no. Um, I conclude, and many and many others do, of course, um, that it would seem, to, yes, it is. Think, think, there's no other parable that I can think of where Jesus um, uses something which does not exist to illustrate his point. Do you know what I mean? Like, Jesus tells the parable of the, of the lost coin. He didn't have to invent coins for that parable. They already existed, right? He tells us the parable of the, um, the prodigal son and the farm and his father. And whilst that's not a historical true person, we're not going to meet the prodigal son, everything about that story is based in reality. The, the, the relationship with the father and son, the farm they work on, the place where the son goes to work, these are all real things that really do exist. Um, Jesus didn't invent pig troughs in order to tell that story. And so how would it be that he would tell us this story, the one time in the entire New Testament, where Jesus tells us a parable, and the details of the parable have no parallel in reality at all? It doesn't seem to work. So why don't we read it and see if we can learn about this paradise. Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, much like Jeremy's coat, um, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And his gate at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with that which fell from the rich man's table. And moreover, even the dogs came to lick And licked his sores, which is totally gross. Um, The poor man died and was carried away by the angels. Just in in, in case you're wondering if that's a good idea, if you have a sore. No, that's that's not the solution to your problems. You do not want to know where that mouth has been. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, which is the Greek word, which means the place of the dead, being in torment... He lifted up his eyes, and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and to cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass... And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Okay, Um, a few things to say about this one. This parable has a main point, which is not the, the, the question we're interrogating it to get at, right? Jesus told this story to teach us a main issue. And like with all of the parables, if you push too far outside of the main point, the illustration can fall apart. So we have to be careful not to get to say something to us that it's not trying to say. The main point that Jesus is telling us is that there is an afterlife coming and that those who are going to receive God's blessing in the afterlife may not be the people we suspect or expect to see there. Okay? In, in this day, there was a, a belief which connected a person's material blessings here in this world to being in a, standing, a good, positive standing with God. We read in the book of Job that when, when Job suffered, his friends assumed that God was punishing him for something, which we don't believe is true. Jesus is saying, no, 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 just because you're rich here on earth doesn't mean that you are close with God. And just because your life on earth here is hard doesn't mean God is far from you. And there is a day coming on the other side of the grave where this will make sense when Lazarus will be receiving God's mercy, even though his life here on earth was not mercy. What's more, he tells us, it's very easy to tell who is going to go to which destination in the afterlife, you can see them here in this word. It's the way in which they respond to the word of God as heard through Moses and the prophets, the Bible, we like to call that. Those who respond in faith to the Bible today are those who are heading for heaven and those who will not hear that word and will not respond to that word are those who will oppose God forever. In fact, he says, no, no, you don't understand. If someone was to go to them from the dead, if they were to see a miracle, don't you ever wonder that? Like, Why doesn't God just do more miracles and then everyone would believe? According to Jesus at this point, they wouldn't. That wouldn't be enough. In fact, he tells us they wouldn't even believe if someone were to rise from the dead. Guess what? He did, and they didn't. And yet this story gives us these, just these little intangible, just on the edge of our understanding, pictures of the beginning of the afterlife. This is, is, this, is this the disembodied state? Is this the, the intermediate Heaven, is this the paradise, uh, the place of blessing as well as the place of of torment which begin immediately after we die? And it would seem that the answer is yes. What do we learn of paradise from this text? Um, The word isn't used. Instead, um, the the phrase here in the ESV is Abraham's side, um, which is good. because The the King James Bible translates that same phrase, Abraham's bosom, which makes paradise sound hairy and moist. And so um, I'm really glad they changed that one. Yeah, it's my favorite part of the whole sermon <laughs> name a context where those two words together is a positive it doesn't exist don't, don't try to actually answer that question that I just asked please he's carried by angels to Abraham's side that's what we read carried by angels that's pretty cool isn't it what happens to the thief on the cross Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Today you will be with me in paradise. Death, angels carry him to the place of blessing. It's a cool promise, isn't it? And angels are awesome. Angels aren't like biblical angels, right? Not, not like Valentine's Day card angels. Yeah, God's warrior spirits. God's, God's forever helpers. The, the ones who, who, who stood before the shepherds, and the shepherds were like, "Do we do we worship this, or do we?" I said, no, no, I've, I've come to bring you good news of Garrett joy. Jesus is coming. One of those will carry us to Abraham's side, awake, conscious of what you're receiving, to join the fellowship of the redeemed. Abraham speaks. He's cognizant. He's interacting this is a man who is 4000 years dead to a place of comfort do you know what that word comfort means this is this is the word used in the text that he is comforted here comfort we think of comfy like the couch right it's a te- it's like the it's like the one meaning of comfortable that we've retained and it's the weakest one the the word the two parts of the word in english are come and fortify Draw near and give me strength. Make me strong. Jesus tells us that the Holy Spirit himself will be our comforter who will come to us. He will draw near to us. He will bring the presence and the blessing of Jesus with him and he will make us strong. He will fortify us. In paradise, you will be comforted. You will be made strong as God himself draws near to you. Do we, I mean, do we put this with the thief at the cross? You'll be with me in paradise. It's not just Abraham. It is the Jesus who we have heard of and believed in and loved without sight. That is the day when faith will be sight. What is happening to those who have passed on before us? They are now in the presence of God, knowing his face and awaiting the final resurrection. It's pretty cool. What are they doing there? I don't know. <laughs> That's the one I can't answer. I got, I got one, one insight, and it's really skinny. Um, but we'll take a look at it. It comes to us from the book of Revelation. Um, Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. Um, this is one of those scenes uh, in Revelation. Revelation's a weird book. It's like, it tells us like the whole story, of the end of the world, all the way up to and including the new, the new heavens and the new earth, the final resurrection. But that happens in chapter 21, and we're at chapter 6. So, so this scene that we're reading is, is one of the scenes that takes place. It's like the, the Apostle John got this vision of the end of the world between now and then. Um, and the book jumps between him looking into what's happening in heaven and him looking at the future of the earth. And this is the two, the two channels the book takes. And this scene in Revelation 6 is one of the heavenly scenes, this side of the resurrection. Same side as us. What's going on in heaven right now, that's the question. Um, or something similar to this will be happening in the near future. Revelation 6, nine ten 10 says, When he opened the fifth seal, this is an angel doing seal stuff that has been going on for a while now. It's not worth explaining for now. Um, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. The martyrs, I call them, those who had been killed for their faith. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who who dwell on the earth? And then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. It's about all I got. I'm so sorry. Actually, there's a few prayers like this in the book of Revelation. They go along the lines of, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Right? This, this world is broken. The rebellion against you. How come you can, t- can tolerate it? Why don't you come already and just fix it now? Fix it now. When you come, it's all fixed. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Apparently, whilst John is praying that, the martyrs are in heaven. The souls of the martyrs are in heaven. It says, it says that they um, are under the altar. I don't know what that means other than to say that their location is in the, the heavenly throne room, which the earthly temple is a copy of. Right? And they are praying. I mean, they're there in the presence of God speaking with Him face to face. Uh, if they have faces, I don't know how that works. Um, and they're praying, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Haste the day when justice will reign and rebellion against you will finally cease. They pray. I'm going to go to the next slide. Thanks, Tish. I pulled out. This is, this is the best I can do. <laughs> they're praying. Like, it just, it just, like, I can ask, but I can't answer. Do they know what's happening here? Maybe. Yeah, I, I can't say it categorically. I don't, I don't see it that clearly in the text, but they are at least aware that, that it hasn't happened yet. right? I, I don't know that we can leap from this to um, they're watching over us. I don't, I don't know that we can, but maybe. Um, they're in the presence of God. They're welcome in the Holy of Holies. They are given, this is really cool, glory and rest. Wait, this um, This is verse 11. So they pray this prayer. Hurry up, avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth, for those who would kill your servants. Let's hurry up and make this justice thing happen. Um, by the way, like if you, if you think that this martyrdom thing is a thing of the past, I'm afraid it's not. It's still going on in the world today. People, people die for their faith every day. They say that Christianity is the most persecuted religion on the planet. It is a dangerous thing to be a Christian in certain parts of this earth. And as they die their souls are going here and joining in this prayer. And to each of them was given a white robe. And they were told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. I mean, I know this is ethereal. Um, God knows the whole story from beginning to end of what's going to happen in human history. He knows how many more of them there are going to be. He's fixed a number. He won't allow any more. And wants the full number of them? are done. That's when the, the story progresses. We don't, we don't get told when that is. Um, and so he tells them that they are to rest a little longer. So they're in a place of rest. And he's told that they were each given a white robe. Now this is kind of cool, if you think about it. What's like, one, you're like, white robe, that sounds pretty fly, right? What <laughs> um, <laughs> What's say? Suit up, Suit up. Yeah, that's right. Um, picture with me the the parable of the prodigal son right? the the son who rebelled against his father and ran off into a foreign land in order to to waste his life and reckless living, waste his father's inheritance he found himself at rock bottom eating from from the pig trough and thought to himself you know what even the servants in my father's house are better than this let's go home and he went home and the father saw him coming and ran to embrace him and said to him, my son was dead, my son was lost, and now he's found. And the son, what does he do? He starts to stammer out the pre-prepared apology, the, the spiel that he said he'd go, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and then, shh, 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 shh. shh. We're hugging son into the bosom of blessing. And then he starts yelling at the rest of the servants and he says to them, fetch my best robe and put it on my son, right? I'm going to clothe him in my finest things, because he was dead and now he's alive, and I'm going to show him how much I love him. And here we have a scene in Revelation 6 where the souls of the martyrs who have that same story. They were in sin, they were in rebellion against their God, but they came to their senses. They heard the good news about Jesus, and they came home. And on meeting Jesus, they were reconciled to God, and on dying the Father, they will see him sprint to them and clothe them in his best robe, in his righteousness, and show them how much he loves them. That's cool, isn't it? Clothed in a white robe, white symbolizing purity, freedom from stain. It's a weird choice because if you're like me, all of your white clothes are the first to stain. On the first wear, they're pretty good. And lastly, they are awaiting justice they're awaiting justice they're waiting for the day when perfect justice will come knowing that it will that day is a certainty there is between um between the forever home of revelation 21 and and our experience of, of the end of this life unless we are those that last generation living on earth when all of these things happen according to first corinthians 15. um there is an intermediate state, um, and knowing both that that intermediate state exists, and that forever heaven exists, should be for those of us who believe, a source of comfort. is a thing that we should know and give our attention to, because God tells us, God has told us these things for a reason, right? We're staring into we're staring into things that how could we comprehend these things? We're talking about a life after death. My brain can't get I can't get my brain around that. I don't know if you can. You're smarter than me. Um, but the right response to that isn't to ignore it, isn't, isn't to remain willfully ignorant of what God has said, but to embrace what God has said, because He's going to use this to comfort us, to strengthen us here in this life, to follow Him well. This is what we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Here are some promises for us to take home. 2 Corinthians 5.1 We know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Here's cool. Here's the illustration. Um, the body that you live in now, physical body that you live in now, is described as a tent. And the physical body that you will live in then, is described as a building. What 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 is the difference between a tent? And a building. Well, the building is better in every way. The tent is temporary, perishable, impermanent. It's, it's, it's what nomads live in and people going camping. It's frail. It, it's, it's easily victim to the elements. It is not sturdy. It is not dependable. It is not reliable. It, it, it's likely to fail. Um, they have these irritating poles that don't make any sense according to the laws of physics. And then there is a building, permanent, grand, richly appointed. A building which according to this is not made, a house not made with hands. People didn't make this for you. God himself has made this for you. We have a forever home and that's such a wonderful promise according to Second Corinthians 5.2 that we groan while we are in this tent longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. This is this is so exciting that we should look forward to it with with a kind of a restless anticipation. And so on, on some days that's actually easier to do than others, isn't it? Like, I mean, I injured myself at 8.05 this morning pulling laundry out of a cupboard. And I groan with longing for a day where my spine will be something other than the curse that it is. (laughs) We groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed. That was the Greek hope, right? The The Greek version of the afterlife was that we would finally escape this matter, this physical existence, and go off to be spirits. That's not the Christian hope. Christian hope isn't that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, that what is mortal may put on immortality, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Isn't that imagery cool? What is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Have you, have you ever watched like it like, like a vine growing up an old dilapidated ruin of a building and sprouting flowers and going gorgeous? What is mortal is being swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us For this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Do you have the Holy Spirit, Christian? You do, if you're a Christian, that's the answer. God has has placed His Spirit. God Himself has come to live in you. And that's a guarantee. That's that's an assurance. Assurance. That's a promise. The Spirit is proof to you that this is your forever home. And you are going there for a certainty. And you can know it. God is the one preparing you for this. How do I know? He gave me his spirit. And so, we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight, for now. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. If we have to, like, if, Okay, which one would you rather be, dead or alive, And Paul's like, "Mm, mm, mm. I think I would rather be dead. Not because he's like a sad emo type, but because he knows what's coming and how much better it will be for the believer. We long to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. We'd rather it. And so whether we are at home or away, where that comes from. Is that where they name the show from, you are I reckon it is. We make it our aim to please Him. Whether you're here in your tent or whether you are there waiting to receive your building, it is our aim to please Him who has provided for us so lavishly. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We're talking about heaven, the home of the Christian. A heaven which begins, in one sense, the moment that you die, and is made complete some time later. But a heaven which is the glorious dwelling of God, you being with him face to face, you experiencing the fullness of his blessing, you experiencing life without the effects of the fall, You being with all of those who share that worship, who have gone before us. A blessing so intense that the day is coming when we will need a new body in order to experience it. Like, will I finally get to look at the sun? The answer's probably no, because there's no sun in Revelation. It says, we walk by the light of God himself. I think that means brighter. And so we should encourage one another with these words. We should give it our attention because it's worth giving your attention to. You should allow it to give you strength today to make you brave to do what God has called you to do. Because what's the worst thing they can do to us? Send us home. Let's pray. Yeah. Lord, we live in an era where I suppose it's easier than it has been for a long time for us to understand why your promise that this world is coming to an end is good news, in some sense. Lord, we don't look forward to death. That sounds pretty bad. We do look forward to sitting with you as you taunt it. Um, This world is broken. We feel it every day. Lord, I am broken. I feel it every day. This world doesn't work like it should it's not like the world you created it's it's stained and, and sullied and mean and sick it, it's dying and so we thank you that this is not our forever home and that we have one will we hear your warning that whether whether that be by, by by the reward of faith or the punishment for the rebel we have a forever home we give our attention to your invitation to grace. Ask and we pray, Lord, uh, that you would take these truths, help us to trust them. Lord, the, the, these, these details, as incomplete and imperfect as they are, that we look forward to participating in, will be more permanent for us and more real for us than this life ever was. There is a day coming when it won't be hard to believe or see but but where the fallenness of this life will be hard to believe and see. Take us there with you. Take us there with your people. Give us the assurance that it's ours through Jesus and if it's not yet ours, Lord, help us to hear your invitation that this is what you want to give everyone. This is why you sent Jesus into the world. That you want to reconcile with us and make us yours and bring us to be with you, to be home. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.